So Joanna, um, yeah, it's great to actually talk to you. I know that we haven't had a chance to really catch up that much, but in terms of sort of your background, you've had a, such an interesting background, to be frank with you, um, and how you started the work that you do today. So I actually started my career as a journalist uh, back when I was 16. So I started to do work experience because uh, that was at the time the kind of advice that you got around, you know, how to get into an industry or sector that you were unfamiliar with and not very well plugged into or connected to. So I started doing work experience um, and I found it really, really interesting in that it definitely secured that I wanted to go into journalism. But what it also did <laughs> was ex kind of demonstrate very quickly how difficult it was for people from particular backgrounds to succeed in that space. So, so for in my instance, I was from a low socioeconomic background. So, you know, doing the work experience I was doing, especially in magazines, uh, journalism, which was the, where I was doing it at the time, you didn't really get your expenses paid or anything like that. So because we didn't have this sort of spare money, if you like, to to do so lots of unpaid experience slots, if you like. I um, I used to walk to my work experience. I used to not have lunch. And I did that for a really, really long time. I mean, like throughout college, so sixth form college, throughout my uh, degree. And it wasn't really until I got to my MA and I had a Saturday job that paid quite well because sort of previous Saturday jobs didn't pay that well for the amount of hours I was doing like combined with studying and I was based in Reading and so my travel expenses were slightly more were slightly higher because I had to come into London during my during my degree to do work experience and so I just realized actually you know it's not quite the same as what was happening when I lived on the council estate back in southwest London when I was in sixth form where I could walk to the work experience now I was in Reading so I had to have the money to get the train down on say like a Thursday afternoon and be able to do a day on um, work experience a week and then of course throughout the whole kind of Easter and half terms and Christmas holidays and so I realized really quickly that if you're not from a background where you kind of have that economic um, support then you're already at a disadvantage because you're not even in the the pool they're not even you know you're not making contacts no one's getting to see you you're not getting any work published so you've got nothing to to use to share with any, with anyone and so that kind of when it just opened my eyes really to the inequity that we face. And by we, I mean just anyone really that's from a uh, underrepresented kind of background. So whichever minority you, you might want to call that. I think what I found also at the time was, although it wasn't as significant to me, I was the only brown person. If I was, if there were others, it was two of us, for example. Um, and I worked across about seven different media companies and in fact, I can honestly say that of all the places I worked, there was one magazine that had two other ethnic minorities. And bearing in mind, it's seven media companies. They probably have portfolios of about 30, 40 magazines. So I'm talking about across seven, seven companies with portfolios of 40 plus titles. I can tell you two women and I can tell you who they are today because I'm still in touch with them. <laughs> so... Wow. So in terms of from an ethnic minority background, so not only did we have low representation from socioeconomic backgrounds, but we also had that uh, with with ethnicity. We definitely I definitely didn't see anyone with a visible disability until I was about 27. And I started doing work experience when I was 16. So I just realized that it was it was unfair and I was uncomfortable with it.
And I just thought, how can I do something about it rather than complain? So when I was 18, I started to do, started to run a charity called um, Elevation Networks with seven of my friends. We, uh, they still exist. Um, I was with them probably about two years and then I set up my first business, Shine Media. And the whole aim really was to increase diversity initially within the creative sector, but as time's gone on, um, it's across sectors. So from technology to financial services, um, and just ultimately the way we we do that has just developed, but it's always been pretty much the same approach. Why do you think those um, inequalities were there and why they continue to persist? Because I faced the same thing as well in my life. And I saw that where you started was a big indicator of where you probably finish. And people can move between the socioeconomic groups, but it's really hard. You have to... First of all, your role models, your education, everything is so different. So why do you think those inequalities are there and why do you think they continue to persist? Um, I, I think they're, they're there because of structural challenges like those that you've just kind of mentioned. I think, um, this, I, think, I think the world or society, certainly in the UK, I'll speak more about that. I think this is the, the society in the UK, whether it's the education system, the care system, etc., um, our welfare system, that's the criminal justice system. I feel I think it's it's set up in a way that will forever, unless we we manage to change it because we're getting there. Um, but but we're set up to forever keep a particular group of people in a particular position, and that particular group being those from a particular class. I think we're still very much a class society. So and just by the very nature of the way that those systems are set up, it means that disproportionately ethnic minorities, those with disabilities, those um, uh, with a different sexual orientation to the majority, uh, those who um, don't identify in a particular way or those with particular strong faith or religious beliefs um, and women just fall into these, these positions where actually it's, it's quite it's quite difficult for them to, because of their class, to be able to elevate themselves. And you, you'd think that the education system here in the UK, where, where it's a free education system, would level that playing field. But actually, as I say, it's a whole movement and it's a whole interconnected um, kind of situation because, yes, we all get to go to school. So I went to school and I use school very much as my liberator. I use school as a way to educate myself, upskill myself and to... <clears throat> and to then go on to do what I do today but again that's come from my my parents realizing that there was an important thing that I do um and that was because my dad's from West Africa so comes to the UK in 74 realizes racial inequity is at its height um and and actually that we're gonna have to make sure these children are equipped you know to to manage and maneuver through this inequity and I just think like, yes, we, we all had education and we get access to it. But the fact that I walk myself to school and have to stand in a separate queue for free school meals with a ticket in my hand, sends out messages to people, does something to my self-esteem. You know, the fact that my uniform is hand-me-down does something to my self-esteem. Uh, if I leave the house in the morning and I've not had breakfast, uh, uh, have I turned up at school with a brain ready to learn and engage? Therefore, will I attain um, so we may have access to that, but what everyone needs to be successful for so their equity in those things is very, very different. And until there are, as I say, you know, additional support 
for all the external factors that influence the education system, it's not necessarily a leveler in some ways. And it takes a, if you are from one of those backgrounds, which is slightly, you know, underrepresented or starting with a disadvantage. And I'm going to say starting with a disadvantage because I don't like describing people from marginalised groups as disadvantaged because quite often I don't, I think they've got um, huge amounts of things that make, that make them quite advantaged. But we've, we've, there's this hot, nasty rhetoric around people who are not upper class and from a particular educational background that says actually that they're lesser than when I think they're, they're absolutely more, more than enough to, to go forth. It's just that actually the things that they're dealing with externally pose a, a huge challenge. So, um, so for me, I think the reason why it all exists there is because we haven't done anything as a society to support the family which, whichever family that is whether that's two mummies two daddies you know whichever family that is it hasn't been enough support put around that perhaps um and then the subcultures that children can pick up based on you know where they're living in their environment we haven't done enough to you know intervene there and to put interventions in place so I feel like the reason it's like that is because just the very the very structures in which society has been built on it's only going to support those who come from a place where perhaps money is not a challenge. Additional support is not a challenge. So even if you're struggling with your mental health, there is there is a family unit around you that can provide you with the relevant resources privately. Perhaps you're not relying on an already stretched out NHS. So I think the list and list that sort of goes on and on and on. But I certainly feel at times it's, it's deliberate. Yeah, I thought about how we don't have very many uh, black tech founders. And if you really look at the environment that most tech founders grew up in, if you look at the Mark Zuckerbergs or the Steve Jobs, you know, they, they lived in a certain affluent area. They could get, you know, that 50 or 70,000 to start their first business. If they wanted to get their first client, you know, the kinds of clients they could get in that neighborhood for a tech company versus ones you could get maybe in Peckham if you started a tech company. You know, it's, it's very different, right? It is. So I, I think about it all the time. I think it takes as well, um, Saka, I think it takes a, like a whole village. And by that, I mean, so, and it, it takes, a, when you're from a particular social economic background, it takes a whole village of support around you. So by that, I mean, so when I first set up my uh, Shine Media, my first organisation, I then had to think about an office space because I wanted to run training sessions. And then it's, well, where'd you get the money for the training sessions? So obviously I had um, I had a job as a journalist, so I used all of that to, to pay for that space. But then how was I able to get a space that I could afford? Well, that took a particular borough to have some outreach work that was trying to support young entrepreneurs from particular backgrounds. So that's how I was able to access that. Then you think, right, I need a network. So you go to all these free events, which other people who really care about diversity and inclusion are setting up. So I just think that it takes, it takes so much of a village and intervention. It's not a case of having the resource, you know, sort of in, in your house. And my mum and dad are, are incredible, but I sometimes would think to myself, imagine if my mum worked at, you know, there or at Vogue or knew so-and-so, I, I probably would have had an entirely different journey to one that I had. So I'm very proud of the journey that I had, but I'm just explaining that actually it takes so many key contributing factors to all work in like teachers to care about me. You know, my mum and dad to be from a low socioeconomic background, have all their battles, but say, whatever happens, we're going to try and keep these children on the right path. You know, mm. you know, there's that effort. Then there's the school effort. 
Then there's a the local community effort. Then there's the people that are our local heroes organizing programs, schemes, things like the event that you and I sat on to try and upskill and educate these individuals who don't get access to these things. So it I just don't I just think that the challenge that you have if you come from a sort of a marginalized group is having to forge your own way, having to forge your own path through being so proactive you just don't have the privilege of going I'll see how it goes <laughs> yeah it's, it's it's a different thing to have a safety net around you right you do, that that sense of privilege it's it's so so different and I wanted to tie this back into your journey because I know you became an entrepreneur and I myself an entrepreneur and I do different things but part of being entre an entrepreneur is having that safety net to know that if you fail you might at least have a roof over your head or you're still going to eat you know there's a certain level of freedom you have if you know your basic necessities are taken care of I, I wanted to touch on how did you start to actually you know grow your business and that venture from not having a business to actually being a business owner as you alluded to some of those parts there but what was that journey like what were you scared of what were you afraid of what was getting funding like all those types of things yeah, I think it's such a good question. And I'm so glad you asked because I try to be so transparent about this whenever I'm asked about it. It was so hard. It was like, it was so hard. It was like, can you imagine from like the age of 18 to 29, I, um, I balanced sort of full-time education with full-time work experience and then I, and an organization, whether it's Elevation Networks or Shine Media. And so can you imagine how much sleep I didn't get? Like, I, I, I kid you not, I was exhausted. I don't even remember much of my 20s, like other than <laughs> all the things I achieved professionally because I didn't go on holidays with friends because all the money I had went into this office space or went into that training program that I'm trying to get used to provide opportunities for the next generation of journalists, for example. So there's a huge amount of sacrifice I couldn't afford the tube so I would sort of like I so I lived with my parent with my dad and I was on a journalist salary so to be really like to be that transparent that was like my first salary was like 19,000 pounds a year which wow. that's tough in it, London that's tough in London right so then and then your travel card I don't know was something like 100 pounds or something so I couldn't get the travel card I had to get a bus pass but I, I lived in um Battersea and everything was in central London so you can imagine like going on a tube is like 20 minutes into central London and getting a bus was like an hour and a half in rush hour so you're having to do you're having to, to do that and I, I know it's a first world problem I'm not at all talk like referencing the fact that there aren't people that walk for miles just to get to fresh water I'm not even trying to make that comparison I'm just ex trying to break down like what a day was like and then you'd, you'd kind of do that 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 journey work all day in in a you know in a newsroom then you'd go out and do all your stories so you'd go to this red carpet that event trying to get stories you'd finish at like 11 12 then I'd get a bus a night bus to my office in Camden and sit there till four in the morning trying to run the business I pretty much did that for like six and a half years and I worked on the weekend so and with all of that I earned not a penny I, I, I think the year I the first year I earned any money from anything I was doing, whether it was Elevation Networks or Shine Media, and considering I'd placed probably at one, 1,500 people into work at this point, I didn't earn any money until I was 27. Wow. So when I say it, it was hard, it was so hard. 
um, and then you 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 don't you doubt yourself, right? Because you don't have the connections, you know. Um, so even if your organisation's like winning awards and people are going, "Oh, you're doing so well," you don't you don't believe that because you're still being driven by, if you like, my agent once called it the anger of the inequity that you're seeing all around you for all the people that you are like a huge ally for. And mm-hmm. so what would happen was, you'd you'd get drawn into the wrong partnerships because you know, if that big firm wants to work with me, I must be good. Not because you, you don't have your own self-worth or your own self-value. You're, you've all of a sudden got, because you've gone from a bedroom business on a borrowed laptop to a huge corporate in multiple territories going, we'd like to work with you. You're so grateful that they'd work with you that you don't even work smartly around, well, what should that look like in a formal relationship, like in terms of financially, but also the relationship that we have. So... I think I think I've yeah I think I've made a lot of wrong turns I've had to have like I've had to pay a hell of a lot of money to lawyers um like so I've learned lawyers that the hard way sorry but lawyers for what what are you paying lawyers for exactly so um I'd have like I do a partnership with someone and being young and kind of fresh-eyed and naive and unaware I'd not understand something clearly or it wasn't a fair it wasn't a fair sort of deal that was happening or someone was trying to take advantage and then when I finally found myself realizing that that was a situation I was in I'd have to speak to like someone you know close to me would say you probably need to speak to a coach or you I mean a lawyer or whoever it might be and then I'd have to do that and realize half my IP was almost taken or you know my brand's being totally you know taken off in derailed off into this in this direction, not my personal brand, but the brand of the organization. So there was a lot of that. Um, also being a woman, there were a lot of um, men that would, you know, would say they're helping, but not, I don't necessarily think for the right reasons, which eventually would find you in really uncomfortable situations. And as a young um, woman, it's quite intimidating to find yourself in those environments. Mm. Um, and then you might get investment and actually, the investor may have had the best intentions, uh, whether that's been, you know, partnerships that, have, uh, that everybody knows about and that I've been very vocal about, or whether it's been sort of private equity uh, investments. And those relationships don't always work. Um, and some people don't know how to actually, don't understand what you've built by your, by yourself and kind of think that because they're in the larger vehicle, that they'll know better about how that works without really un- letting you explain how you've built what you've built and, and and two people to come together with both of their strengths. It can can constantly feel a bit like, well, you're too young. You know, we've been doing this for 50, like 30 years or 20 years. We know, trust us kind of thing. And so there's so much that goes on there. You know, you're, you don't trust yourself. You have to learn a lot about money. You have to learn a lot about accountancy. You have to learn a lot about legalities. I'm sure I'm not the only entrepreneur that's been stung a few ways even in the smallest way um and I've I don't have any enemies I've I've, I've got lovely people that have supported me and been around me but I just just saying that it's like you you have to learn some of those things and when you're from the background I'm from no one's kind of telling you or preparing you for that um yeah so it's certainly not been easy definitely not so I mean I can resonate with so many different parts of what you're saying to be honest with you I remember a time in uh, in university and college and uh you know, all my friends would be traveling and going for, you know, 
Cancun spring breaks and things like yeah, that. Yeah. It was a different story. I remember the one time I couldn't afford to get myself a hot dog. It was like a dollar fifty or something like that. And I was like, man, I got to figure something out because uh, if I don't do it, I'm not going to have anything. You know, I actually went to a dentist one time and I couldn't afford to pay the dental bill. So he was like, hey, if you go on campus and sell these toothbrushes and refer people to me for each person you refer, I'll give you a bit of a discount or something like that. So, you know, it's just that that hustle, that mentality that you got to make something out of yourself. Where does yours come from? Where, where does that drive to succeed? Where does that confidence, where does all that come from? It's so funny because um, when you said that, that just, it absolutely is ex exactly what you have to do. You're constantly thinking on your feet, aren't you? You're constantly thinking, well, I don't have this, so what can I do? And I think that was what was driving me. Also, like my parents, we grew up, my parents were together throughout my whole childhood, um, but their relationship wasn't always that positive. So, and so certainly our, our home environment wasn't always the most positive. So, um, I think I realized quite quickly that as they would, they'd told me the most that they knew at that time, which was work hard, try your best at school, have to get good grades, have to go into university, then you'll get a good job. So I knew that for that moment in my life, that's the best they knew. And then it wasn't until sort of time went on and then they get more experience. Bear in mind, my dad would have only been, my dad would have only been in the country, uh, you know, like 20 years maybe before, actually that's not even true, maybe like 10 years before I was born. So they, they're telling me what they know at that time. And, and I think I realized that I was gonna have to find out stuff for myself, that I couldn't rely on other people, that actually they had my parents had so much going on in their own adult life that they were trying to work through which now as an adult I can appreciate that it was always going to be really tough for them to tell me or manage with me um and my sister and my brother like what we needed to do so I just I think my can came from well if I'm looking around and no one else knows well I can only look to myself to find out and I think that's where it came from I just didn't want I used to look out the window on the council estate and I'd see people playing around and not always doing the right thing. And I used to think, um, I just don't want to do that. So what, what do I need to do to go the other way? Exactly. I've had that same thought in my mind as well. I look at different instances in my life when I look around and I'm like, this cannot be my life. You know what I mean? Like it has to be more than this. And it's happened to me at different stages. I remember in university as well. I was like, you know, seeing a lot of people go to, regular jobs and staying in them for like 10, 20 years. Yeah. And I was like, that's not the life I want. Like that cannot be my life. So at different stages, you just look around and take stock and decide this cannot be my life. It has to be more. And then it unlocks the mind to think of, okay, then what do I need to do? Who do I need to speak to? Because as you mentioned, your parents might not be the ones to give you that information. You have to seek it out. you got to hustle, quote unquote. But um, where you are now and where you're trying to get to, what are the steps you think you need to take in order for you to get there? What does your vision look like? What do you hope in five to 10 years time, someone can look back and say, wow, you know, Joanna did this, or this is something that's now available because she did this, you know, what, what are you hoping to achieve? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And almost one I'm going to probably answer here in the moment, <laughs> because um, it's a really good question. So Joanna 10 years ago would have said, and she's it's probably somewhere on something. 
but it said, I want to have a massive building in Canary Wharf, you know, with Shine Media at the top, I want the top floor office, I want the whole building to be full of people from a broad range of backgrounds, and we're going to be educating society on, to, on how to do, to do better at being inclusive. And we'll probably have some magazines in there and some TV channels, which also do that and represent that. And I spent two years as part of a FTSE 250 company, actually building that out, scaling out a business that would operate in 33 territories. And I realised probably about 18 months in that the, my idea of just not pleasantness would be managing a lot of people. It's not what I like to do. It's not where my strengths lie. So that vision of having that big building was going to require a lot of management, a lot of stakeholder management, a lot of people management, all of which doesn't in, doesn't excite me, doesn't just doesn't play to my strengths. So I had to start thinking, so how do you get those those the same outcome, which was I wanted to make I wanted to educate the world as far as I could get on how to be more inclusive and, and more diverse. And so I thought, well, how do I do that without all the pressures of those things? And so now I, I think I found my rhythm. Um, so I run Blue Moon. Uh, we have diversity metrics. We have executive search and we have diversity and inclusion consultancy. I have between six and 10 consultants at any one time that are all associates. So they're all their own business. So I don't have the overheads, but I'm never working alone. Um, so we work together as and when that business requires it. So it meant that I get to empower people to continue being incredible at the different things they're doing because they're all expert in particular areas of diversity with lived experience. I get to learn from them because they're expert um, and I can do all the things I do really well, which is coach, mentor, encourage, motivate through all the other roles that I have on various boards that I sit on and the amount of sort of volunteering that I do. So I'm now at a place where I want to continue to run an organisation with this sort of associate consultant model uh, that w operates globally, which we're, which we're doing. I'd like to continue that. But I guess my goal is that I don't have to run this forever because things would have changed. And then I'd like to go off and um, spend time doing work with the UN and doing work with... Um, uh, I'm very, very interested in human rights, so I'd love to at some point um, do something slightly more specific around that, which I haven't quite worked out. Um, I'm really keen to, and I have plans for, and it's kind of in the making, to do more with government um, and to start to try and influence the powers that have the structures as they are. Um, so it, it stayed the same in terms of the motivation and the purpose but what that looks like is just different now it doesn't it's not a big building in fact it's actually me working from home some days in a cottage in the countryside where I can have lots of animals and things so it's just it's I think as you get older you realize um that you can have all of the, the all of the dream all of the the ambition and the achievement and the goals that you wanted but they don't have to look the way that you think it looks um, and actually one of the chief people officer at S3 told me that, a uh, former chief people officer. So she she was one of them, well, she was, yeah, the only other, there was two women that were at the board, executive board. And so she was, you know, she was constantly ref referred to as like breaking the glass ceiling. And one of the things that I thought was interesting was um, when another role came up, 
which was another C-suite role, slightly more senior than her C-suite role. Everyone expected her to go for it. And I remember sitting in her office with her going, you know, how are you finding everything? And are you getting this pressure getting? And she said, not at all, because I'm not going to go for it. And I said, why? She said, because when you break down what that actually means from a lifestyle perspective and a day in, day out, I don't want to do that. So I'm not going to do it because that's what success looks like to someone or the assume, the assumption of what, of, of what success looks like to someone in my position is to keep going that way. I'm just going to do the things I actually like because that's my sort of definition of success. And so literally that was one of the most liberating pieces of advice I've ever been given because since then I sit on a number of boards for, as a non-exec and a trustee. I'm a governor of lots of schools and I get to do the work that I do in my business. So I get to do absolutely everything I want to do and aim to do without having a, a team of like 100 people that I need to be um, responsible for and motivate, which isn't a strength of mine. So um, I hope that answers it. And I hope it gives a bit of advice in there too, that it can change and like that, that's okay. Yeah, that, I think it's great, especially because touching on the notion of success in the black community and across the world, in Africa and America here as well, we typically emulate people um, because we think there's a certain um, lifestyle that comes with success. And you only, you define your success by what you see other people who are deemed as successful are, right? So in the black community, you see a lot of rappers or you see a lot of musicians or you see a lot of sports players, you know, those are the people that are successful. So of course, there's going to be a lot of kids or youth. I want to get into that. But, you know, the, the idols in the sort of corporate world or people like yourselves who eventually get some sort of recognition, thankfully, I mean, you became an MBE, which is some recognition, but I don't think there are enough role models there um, to, you know, show others that there is another way and there are black successful people in corporate or startups or tech entrepreneurs and things like that. Uh, do you, is this a challenge you see in your, your work as a DNI sort of recruiting, you know, there's very few people to speak to or, or to show or, or what are your thoughts on that? Mm, I think you're right. I think there are, I think there are huge, huge efforts and some are hugely successful at demonstrating the black role models that we have, for example, you know, like the Powerless Foundation, the Empower List, the National Diversity Awards. There are so many, like the Precious Awards, the Black Women in Business Awards. I think there's a lot of organisations that are out there trying to say um, we exist and we are promoting the um, the position, influence, achievements of, in particular, sort of black and brown people. And I think that... Um, but having said that, they, although we have those vehicles and they're incredibly important, they are those individuals themselves are underrepresented in most organisations. So while it can look like a huge talent pool, of which it is on, um, on paper, when you go into those individual companies, in fact, they're fighting their own internal fight there because there's still not the equity that they deserve or um, being sort of introduced for future generations. Um, so I think it's sad because I always say like diversity is the only it's the only way it doesn't any other way doesn't make sense. Inclusion to me is the only way anything will work. If you don't understand people and the different needs that they have, customer, client, stakeholder, manager, employee, nobody thrives. Um, but I think I think that people, as I say, it's back to that original question. The structures benefit particular groups of people. And until they feel comfortable that actually there's enough space for it to benefit other people that don't look like you or sound like you 
or don't have the same body as you, we're not going to, we're never really going to see that change. Um, and I certainly think that what I do do is I highlight the work that organisations are doing to encourage candidates to know who those companies are so I can start to see them with or without my support as with the organisation I run, but start to go into those businesses and drive and continue to drive the, the ambitions that they hold for a more inclusive workplace. But equally, it's about um, saying, if they're not going to invite you to the table, like go create your own, you know, like, you know, if they if, if they can't see your worth, like more for them, you know, go and create something that where people will see that and where you can empower hundreds more to believe in themselves. And I know that sounds very like worthy and righteous, but I've seen it happen so many times. If you look at some of the most incredible people in my network, a lot of them have felt rejection. They have been rejected. They have been alienated. They have been capped. They've, you know, they've had someone sort of, they've had to get through concrete ceilings, you know, glass ceilings and they can't. And so, um, and so, I've, and then they've gone off and said, well, I'm not going to sit here worrying about trying to convince you that I'm great. I'll go and do something with people that can see that value. And so I think while we have a challenge, there are huge efforts. Um, it's important that those of us who have had a light shone on us, that we continue to com have conversations like this that you're having on your podcast, Saka, so that people get more and more access and awareness of different journeys, different uh, expertise. Um, and certainly that we use our voices where we can to just keep, keep, tackling and challenging um who we who we give attention to yeah no i completely agree i'm curious to get your thoughts on well i want to say the black experience but on um sort of the british way of looking at the world versus sort of the american way versus sort of the african way i don't know maybe on tv or your, your relatives that are in africa but just the difference of culture and experiences perhaps not just for black people, but for minorities in America versus here. And the reason I'll ask that is because I've experienced what it's like to be black on three different continents. You know, in America, they have a very different way of looking at things in Africa and, and in Britain as well. And in America, it seems like because they were so collectively um, disenfranchised, they had to form these groups very early on. And so you have things like the United Negro College Fund or historically black colleges and universities, HBCUs like, you know, Morehouse and, you know, all these places. So there, there seems to be a stronger economic unit and blackness is, is sort of very unified. But over here, you know, you got the Jamaican crew, you got the Nigerians, you got the Ghanaians and all that. So I'm just wondering about your thoughts on the difference of culture or the difference of attitudes or perceptions, depending on your geographic location or your cultural background. I think... I think you make a really good point because this is just my personal observation. I think I've traveled and worked a lot in America and I have always been impressed by how not modest they are. So for example, I get into a taxi in New York or I, or I'm in LA or I'm in Nevada or I'm some, I'm in Dallas and you ask someone what they do they'll tell you what they do and they don't just do one thing they do a number of things and they say all really proud chest held high um and because of that I think their confidence means that um it's that ambition that drive uh, their confidence motivates I think I think I remember going to the New York for the first time and thinking am I lazy <laughs> 
Because <laughs> says the girl who worked for six to seven years. Yeah, I, actually, but you go to New York. I was tired just speaking to people sometimes because I thought I was busy. And then I got to New York and I couldn't, I just thought it was another level of drive. Um, it, they'd say it's a city that never sleeps. And I feel that every time. I feel that every time I go there. Then you go to somewhere like the UK and we're expected to be really grateful. Don't talk too much about your, your um, achievements. Don't do that. You know, you be modest, you be humble, you go in, you support others. You think about like, it's very much like that. Mm. Um, and, and yeah. And then sometimes when there is achievement, it's important that we recognize it. But I think sometimes when there is achievement, um, organizations will kind of make a big deal of it. And sometimes I think that's great. Mm. And other times I think, do you make a big deal of it? Cause you don't expect any more from your disabled mm. colleague would you make a big deal of it because you're so shocked that your you know your lesbian colleague does this or you're, you can't believe a black man's been able to articulately do that or <laughs> but, but do, do you know what I mean sometimes yeah. so I want the celebration because of course if you worked hard absolutely but I wonder if sometimes are we are we saying are we applauding this person because they're brilliant or are we thinking and they're disabled and they manage to do that you know that I'm uncomfortable with but I think that that happens here in the UK. Mm. You know, like people don't want to sit on panels because they're black. They want to sit on a panel because they're brilliant at their job, mm. you know, and that's why they've been called upon. Yeah. Uh, a disabled person doesn't want to be called upon because they're disabled. They want to be able to be called upon because they're brilliant or whatever it is that they're going to talk about. And I think that's one of the things that sometimes I struggle with here. I also, And again, we we have to play it down. And then when we are given an opportunity, we have to be incredibly grateful. Oh, thank you for giving me this, you know, little me, this little Indian man, a job. Thank you so much. You know, and and if we go in, we must we must never make a mistake. Because if it's if we make one mistake, career suicide, if a white middle class, highly educated Etonian male makes a mistake, give him a few more chances. You know, it wasn't his fault. He didn't understand. Bloody, bloody, blah. And there's, there'll be excuses but I certainly find the creative industries, if any of my people that I placed into work, whether they were from a different um, ethnicity or religious group, uh, if they made a mistake, they better believe they've made a mistake. They're going to know they made a mistake and it's going to be really difficult for them to move on and past it. And there is this element of, you know, we, we gave you a chance that you should have gone like, you know, 10 times harder than the others. But that's because of, you know, privilege and superiority that comes into play there. I also, but then if I go to Africa, what I find there, and this is just my observation, I feel like they work so hard. I don't, I don't think they play to the rhetoric that they're, that, you know, that some of the adverts that, you know, that camp and campaigns that charities use uh, speak of. I think actually they want the pride. I think they want their governments and to, to give them the opportunities to have their dignity, to earn an honest living, to provide for their families. Um, and I, I, I sense a real humility, um, hunger and drive when I'm, when I'm back home, if you, if you want to call it that with, with, in Ghana, I feel like, and certainly the work that's been done here for the Ghanaian di diaspora and getting them to connect back to, Ghana and 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 contribute there 
is certainly a testament to the fact that they're saying, you know, not only have we got talent and hardworking people here in Ghana, but we have them also situated all over the world and how we form in relationships with them to see the benefits of that. So I think they have been my three observations, actually, of my experience in those those places. Yeah, I won't go into the details of whether Ghanaian or Nigerian jollof is better. I'll keep that at the side. For now. <laughs> um, it's I'm one of those good. cultural debates, definitely. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, I'm Nigerian, uh, so you know, I, I'm very sensitive to these discussions. So we'll park that. For, oh for no, that. no. Has <laughs> anything that I said do you, do you disagree with in your observations? Uh, no, no, I think you're right. I think people work very hard back at home and it's it's a matter of they don't have very many other options. There's a large mm. informal economy. There's not a very big formal economy. And in that informal economy, you're forced to become an entrepreneur. So everyone is selling two or three things or like they have so many businesses at the same time. So I definitely don't discount that. I think it's, it's very, um, very accurate. The only difference is that I've experienced living in Botswana and South Africa, as well as Nigeria and Ghana and in Kenya as well. Mm -hmm. So I always tell people that the difference between someone from Botswana and Nigeria is greater than the difference between maybe a Nigerian and like an American, mm -hmm. even though we're on the same continent, because mm -hmm. we they are literally night and day. I mean, Nigerians are full of energy and, you know, they want to get things done. And then people from Botswana just relaxed. And yeah, just I've been to Botswana. I've spent time there. I was, uh, I worked. Oh, yeah, I worked, um, I was in Clockweng, Suroi, yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, I want to call it, I want to call it Knightstown, but I know it's not right. Francistown? No, um, oh, that's so annoying. Suroi, <laughs> Clockweng, Francistown. Francis yeah, Francistown. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so my mom used to live there, um, and we lived in a place called Pique, Celebi Pique. Um, but now we live in, in Habaroni, which is the capital. Well, I yeah. say now we're in the UK, but yeah. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's great. Unfortunately, we're, we're kind of out of time. I, yes. I think we could have spoken for hours. We'll have to do this another time. But yeah. um, thanks so much for joining. No worries at all. Thank you for having me.